hitting my brother. He said a mean word. I'm not sharing. Um, when you push someone. Fighting. I'm stealing the clicker. Repentant means, um, I don't know. I don't really know. I think it means to um, stop what you're doing and follow God. Jesus, I'm done with my sins, and I'm going to follow your path, not my path. And you repent your sins. That means you're, you're not going to do it again. not a thing I'd like to do all the time because I didn't want to say my sorry. Well, I, ha I had, I did have to say sorry, but I never had to repent. <laughs> Isn't that great? I think if, uh, if, if uh, we got a bunch of adults up there, I don't know if our answers would be much better than theirs, you know, or any more profound. Uh, we want to welcome you to the gathering of this family that refers to itself as Kettlebrook Church. We're so glad you, that you found us here today. Uh, we Last Sunday, we celebrated Easter Sunday, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And evidently, when Jesus rose from the dead, he must have seen his shadow. And so we now have six more weeks of winter, you know, so... I don't know if that's how it works. I don't think so. I don't think so. But if you're just getting back from spring break, I'm, I, we apologize. But I guarantee you, you didn't miss anything while you were gone. Okay? okay? But today, today is a really exciting day because today we are starting a brand new series. Okay? It's a series that I've been wanting to do uh, for a while and we're calling it Growing Up Again. Okay? Because we all need to grow up in our lives. Most of us in this room, I'm willing to bet... Are adults, And so we've gone through a process or a progression uh, of development to maturity and where we've been able to more or less live our lives independently from our parents. You know, whether you're married or whether you're single, we've all learned to do certain skills like drive a car and hold down a job and pay our bills and go shopping and, and cook a meal to one extent or another, right? We've learned, we've learned how to do those skills. And so, to one extent or another, we can all say that we have grown up. I mean, it's one thing for you to have your five-year-old child at home who depends on you to make his meals, wash his clothes, and wake him up in the morning. But it's an entirely different thing when you have a 25-year-old child who still expects the same things from mom and dad at home. Or when your 35-year-old child is living at home, expects you to make his meals and wake him up in the morning and all that stuff. And, and if we were to see that, we would say, something's not right here. Like, I know a man who's 45 years old. He lives in his parents' basement, eats his parents' food, and depends on his parents to drive him to work every day. And he's not even a millennial. Okay? He's too old to be a millennial. And we look at that and, and we're like, you know, that is not the way it's supposed to be. That's not, that's not the progression. That's not the maturity that God intends for us to take. And I think most of us agree that, that we have the most basic understanding of what growing up entails and what a grown-up is expected to be able to do. But 
while we all may have learned how to tie our shoes and graduate from high school and hold down a job, if we are brutally honest about ourselves, we would say that there are still things about each and every one of us that still need to change. There are part of ourselves where we are like, I wish I didn't do that, fill in the blank, anymore. And I could really just, I wish I could just get beyond that. Or, or if, if we were to ask the people who we are closest to, who we are friends with, who know us the best, and if they were honest with us, they would say to us, yeah, perhaps there are things that you do or behaviors that you have that still cause relational damage to other people around you. And that those things have not yet grown up. Maybe we have a difficulty dealing with anger in our lives and we just fly off the handle easily. Maybe we have a difficulty letting go of slights or offenses in our life and we just can't seem to let that thing go. Maybe we still deal with a crippling anxiety in our lives or a refusal to deal with conflict. And so we just ignore or avoid any conflict in our lives and we just gotta, until it becomes totally unmanageable and then we just pack up and move to another city. Okay? But, you know, wherever you go, there you are. And so the whole thing just starts all over again. And so... And so we realize this intuitively and we begin to say, how, how is it that we can grow up you know, spiritually? How is it that we can get beyond these things that kind of plague us, that kind of you know, are, are dominating in our lives? And so we do things like go to church. Okay? And we go, that's going to be a good step. I'll go to church. Or I'll get more involved in church. Or I'll you know, change my radio station. I'll start listening to K-Love. All right? And if you're really serious, you get the bumper sticker. Okay, you get the kill. If if you're an overachiever, you may begin to do things like begin to memorize Bible verses. Whoa, you know, like like you do do all all these kinds of things in an effort for us to grow up spiritually. The interesting thing is is this is that when Jesus talked about growing up spiritually, he he didn't. He didn't talk about growing spiritually. He didn't use that phrase at all, even though that might have been the idea that he was talking about. What he did talk about was entering the kingdom, where we would allow the reality of the kingdom of God to influence how we see and do life here in this world. That the things that are important to God would become important to us. That the things that God values, we would begin to value. That we would be able to see things from God's perspective. And maybe even more importantly than that, that we would, be able, we would begin to feel about things the way God feels about things. That the things that break the heart of God would begin to break our hearts as well. And when Jesus talked about this, 
he, he didn't say that you needed to go to church more, you needed to get more involved in church or, or anything like that. He talked about different kinds of practices, different kinds of skills. And so for the next four weeks, what we're going to do as a church is we're going to look at some of these skills, some of these practices, some of these postures that will make all the difference in the world in allowing the kingdom to begin to influence and impact our lives in, in a, such a way that we can begin to grow up. And that each and every one of us would see that there is a possibility and the potential to become the kind of people that God has always intended for us to be. Because there's one thing that I know as a pastor is that out after counseling dozens and dozens of people over the last 12 or 13 years is that there are many people here within us who we need to grow up in a major sort of way. And there is not a single person in this room who doesn't need to grow up in some way, shape, or form, including me. And so as we kind of begin this series together, what I want to do is I just want to pause and I just want to ask God to, to bless the next four weeks that we have together as we begin to pursue these kind of habits and practices that will allow the kingdom of God to become more of an impact and an influence in our lives. So why don't we just pray? Father, here we are. And at the very onset of our new series, we want to acknowledge that nothing of any real or spiritual significance will ever be done in any one of our lives unless you're behind the scenes working it. Unless you're drawing us to your son Jesus. Unless you're convicting us. Unless you're the one empowering us and opening up our eyes and ears to see the things that you want to change in each and every one of us. And so we're dependent upon you, God. And so we're asking that you would be kind to us, that you would be gracious, that you would allow us to see and hear things from your perspective, and that we would be able to take real steps of change so that we can grow up to become those people that you've intended for us to be. Pray that you'd give us courage as we go down this path and begin this conversation. We pray that Jesus would re, uh, just receive all the glory from it. We pray it in his name. Amen. I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we're going to look, uh, you'll find that on page 728 in the story of God Bibles there. And so the, the first step to growing up you know, in God, is this first skill or practice, which we're going to look at, is this whole idea of owning our junk, okay? The, the big idea of today's message, if you, you're going to miss it, is, is that owning our junk is the first and critical step in growing up to become kingdom people. Owning our junk is the first and critical and essential step to growing up and becoming his kingdom people. Okay, so now there you have it. Okay, if you don't want to listen to the rest of what I have to say, you can tune out and flip through your phone and do emails or, or scroll Facebook or something like that. You can. But, but if you are interested in becoming kingdom people, you may, you may just want to hang out and, and listen to a little bit of what I, 
have to say next. Now, the biblical word for owning our junk is this word repentance. Okay, it's this whole idea of turning from the direction that we're going in and going in a different direction. And this was a theme of Jesus ministry and of his preaching from the very beginning, like right out of the gate. Jesus is preaching this whole idea of repentance in Mark chapter one. Okay, we're not even into Mark chapter two yet. Mark chapter one, he begins in verses 14 and 15 in Mark chapter one. It says that when uh, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Okay, this is I got great news for you. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Okay, God's rule and reign is now available to everybody. And how do we get uh, into that kingdom of God? How do we allow the rule and reign of God to become influencing in our lives? He says, repent and believe the good news. That's a critical step in allowing God's kingdom to become more and more influential in our lives. And then, later on, there's this time when the people of Israel were uh, kind of uh, discussing this horrific, terrible event that happened in the area of Galilee. There were some Galileans that were brutally and tragically uh, murdered, okay, by the ruler at that time. And at that time, the conventional wisdom was that if someone suffered a horrendous end, then they must have done something to somehow deserve that end. Okay? So it's, it's kind of like this Jewish form of karma. Like, you know, what goes around comes around and you get what you deserve and stuff like that. They were connecting dots that weren't there. All right? Now, I know that we don't ever think like that anymore, do we? Not at all, okay? But these people did, okay? They lived way back then. Okay, and, and they did. And, and Jesus takes this opportunity, and he kind of hears the scuttlebutt around the water cooler at, at, at the time, and he, he uses the opportunity to teach two things. The first thing is he said is that those people who tragically died, they weren't any worse off than any of the rest of you, okay? They had not done anything that was deserving of this kind of tragic end. So stop thinking that way. You guys are connecting dots that aren't there, all right? The other thing that he says, he takes this opportunity to point out that unless each and every one of us repents and turns from our ways, then we too will be cut off from the life of God, that we too will perish. In Luke chapter 13, let's read, read this. He, he, Jesus says, <laughs> well, I can just read it. If you know. There he goes. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. Okay, you guys are connecting dots that aren't there. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. You're all going to perish unless you repent. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were any more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, only because they met this tragic end. But unless you repent, unless you turn, you too are going to perish. You're going to be cut off from the life of God. So this whole idea of repentance was a theme that was just consistent throughout Jesus' ministry and throughout his preaching. I, put up, I could put up a whole bunch of different verses up there that would kind of prove this point. But he's constantly talking about the need for repentance and the necessity to be right with God or to see the kingdom become a reality in our own lives. And so in order for us to really, really understand this, okay, in order for us to really understand this, he now, in Luke chapter 18, he now tells a story. Okay, and he tells a story so that we can get a picture of what real repentance looks like. Okay, 
Now, in order for us to understand the story, we need to understand that this time in Jerusalem, there were two kind of categories of people. There were more than that, but Jesus is going to, only going to talk about two of them. And they are like extreme polar opposite ends of the spectrum, all right, of the religious spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you had the Pharisees, okay? These were the religious zealots of the day. They did everything right. They crossed their T's. They dotted their I's. They were teacher's pet. You know, they were, they, they were the ones who had it all together, okay? And they thought that they really didn't have anything that needed to change, okay? God was really lucky to have them on their team, on his team, you know? So, so that's the, the first group they had. Then on the way, on the other opposite end of the spectrum, you had the tax collectors, okay? And now the tax collectors, these guys were the lowest of the low. They were the ones who everybody else just despised. And hated. These are little guys that sold themselves out to Rome, okay? Because Rome needed tax collected. So what they did was they hired Jewish men to go around and collect taxes from all their other countrymen. And Rome said, we need this amount of tax. And so anything that you, that you collect above and beyond that amount is yours for profit. And they made a lot of profit, okay? They were the wealthiest people in all of Jerusalem at the time, in all of Israel at the time, okay? You could always tell when the tax collectors rolled into town because they came in with their black escalades all tricked out, you know, and stuff like that. And then they'd get out and they'd send out their minions to go do their dirty work and, and stuff like that. And everybody hated them. They were just hated because they, they did three things. They, they were working for the enemy, Rome, and then they, they preyed on their own countrymen, who oftentimes were in extreme poverty already to squeeze the last bit of money that they could get out of them, and they became wealthy in the process. They were extremely wealthy, more than anybody else. So these are people that, that everybody else just hated. And so Jesus takes these two you know, polar opposite ex- extremes on the spectrum and just kind of turns the whole sociological order on its head. So let's read this in uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Then he says in verse 14, I tell you the truth, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified or went home right with God. Okay, let's just stop, stop right there. Okay, so let's, first off, let's just notice one thing. Who is Jesus telling this parable to? Okay, verse 9, the first verse here is that to some who were confident of their own righteousness and Look down on everybody else. So these were people who were like, we, we are in good standing with God. We're a lot better than all those other people. Okay? And so God must be really, really pleased with us. So whose sin or whose junk were they focusing on? Other people's junk. Right? Okay? And then it says, so the Pharisee stood up, he prays, you know, about himself to God. I thank you. Actually, he's not praying about himself. He's actually comparing himself to others. I thank you that I'm not like these other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over there. Then the other guy gets up. 
He stands at a distance. He doesn't even have it in him to look up to heaven. He is so ashamed and covered with his guilt. He beats his breast and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He owns the fact that he has royally messed up and he has broken and busted up over it. He's just contrite before God in this matter. And then Jesus ends up with the kicker at the end. He says this. He says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified or right before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. I want you to just focus on that word, himself. Who is the one person that each and every one of us can take responsibility for? Ourselves, right? And see, real repentance doesn't focus on the sin of other people. Real repentance focuses only on the sin that each one of us can take ownership of and responsibility for. And that's our own. And when we begin to see how God sees our sin, we don't make excuses for it. We don't explain it away. We don't look for legal loopholes in how God's standard somehow doesn't apply to me in this situation. We own it. And we acknowledge it. And we ask for forgiveness from it. And we turn from it. And see, we, we, we like focusing on the sin of other people. Don't we? I mean... That's so convenient because we can always find someone who's worse off than we are, right? Who's kind of lower down on the totem pole than where we are. And when we focus on other people's sin, we feel better about ourselves, but it doesn't ever result in any real or lasting change. When we focus on other people's sin... It makes us feel good, okay, but it doesn't help us to grow up, to become those kind of people that God wants us to be. In order for us to really and truly grow up, there's only one person's sin and brokenness that we can focus on, and that is our own. But if we are willing to do that, Let me tell you, folks, the sky's the limit. Anything is possible. If we are willing to own our stuff and come before God in brokenness and repentance, then anything is possible. The the great news of the gospel is that change is real and possible. I know all sorts of people who at one point in their life were angry, surly, mad people. And today you look at them and they are joyful, happy encouraging people. And you're like, how did that happen? How did it happen? Well, it didn't happen quickly, but it happened through a continual process of when God points something up to someone, they repent and own it and turn from it. We have this lady in our church who just got back from a a spiritual retreat of sorts. And at this spiritual retreat, there's there's amazing teaching but in the, in the process of this retreat and hearing this amazing teacher, she heard clearly from God. Okay? She heard clearly from God. And you know what God told her? He said, 
You're not loving your husband. That's serious. Because I know where they are. They're not in a good way. And she would have every right to look at her husband and say, but you, but you, but you did, but you did. And God said, you know what? I don't, I don't want you to focus on that. I don't want you to focus on him. I want you to take ownership for your junk. And you haven't been loving your husband the way that you ought to. And you know what? She went back. And she changed. She repented. And the husband called me up this week and said, i got to talk to you. we got to meet. And I'm like, okay, let's go have coffee. So we went and had coffee. And he said, what happened to my wife? And I'm like, you know what happened? She repented. And the kingdom of God has begun to influence her life. And if you would repent, the kingdom of God would influence you too. And then the sky's the limit. Your marriage can be saved. Anything is possible if we are willing to just own our junk and acknowledge it and stop digging in our heels and instead let go of our hands and say, you know what, I can take ownership of this piece of me. Now, repentance, real quickly, has a twin brother. Or maybe it's a twin sister. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the gender is there. Uh, but it's a twin and it's kind of the other side of the coin. So repentance is owning our stuff before God and acknowledging it before God. The other side of the coin is confession, where we begin to own our junk to other people. And that's another essential step, because it's easy to own, to own our stuff to God, who's you know not like living with us or knows us or yet faces us. But when we own our stuff to other people and we confess to another human being, what we're doing is we're dragging our junk out of the closet and into the light, where the light can shine on it and we can actually do something about it. And half of the strength in our junk, whatever holds us down or binds us, is in its secrecy. And if we keep something in secret, it still has power over us. And when we drag it out into the light, at least 50% of that power is gone, just dropped. I just made up that statistic on the fly, you know. It's probably higher than that, Okay. When we bring it out into the light, we begin to tell it to other people. So I'm like in recovery right now because aren't we all, you know? So I go to this thing called Celebrate Recovery. It's my recovery program. And at my recovery program, we begin to confess to one another what we're struggling with. And as we do, God brings healing into our lives as our brothers and sisters are able to speak into our lives. One of my good friends from Celebrate Recovery is a guy named Mark. And Mark has a wonderful testimony about how this whole idea of repentance and confession work together and God uses the two of them in order to grow us up to become kingdom people. So what I want to do is I want to invite up Mark here to you um, and I want you to give him a warm welcome and Mark is going to tell a little bit of his story and hopefully my prayer is that you will find it encouraging as you think of your own story. So, Welcome Mark. Hello, I'm Mark. Can you hear me? It's working. All right. Uh, this is a story of me going in the wrong direction, slamming into grace, and then going a different direction. In other words, it's a story of repentance. I'm a millennial, which means I can remember a time before the internet. 
I lived on a small dairy farm in a loving Christian home. I worked hard, played hard, and loved to explore. The problem is, on this particular farm, that meant that I occasionally came across pornographic magazines. I wasn't old enough to understand some of the things I saw, but I was old enough to feel really good when I saw them. I suppose it was the first time I ever got high. I wasn't taught much about sex growing up. At church and at school, I learned that sex was dirty and harmful, and you save it for the woman you love. Nobody talked about porn, so clearly it was something I could never tell anyone about. So when I came across one of these magazines, I would look over my shoulder, take a peek, and then put it back in its hiding spot. Though it felt good, I knew it belonged hidden in the dark. So the impact it had on my life as a child was relatively small. And then the Internet was invented. It wasn't too long until a friend of mine informed me that you can find pictures of naked women on the Internet. So I decided I would find these pictures. They were beautiful, more beautiful than anyone I knew in real life, and by all appearances, they were more friendly. I felt like they were offering me something for free that nobody in real life would share with me. That was a lie, of course. But like any convincing lie, it looked beautiful. It looked healthy. Lust can wear a pretty convincing disguise. But I still knew it was wrong, and the good news is we only had the one super slow computer, and it was in a public area in the house, and I needed the password each time I wanted to dial into the Internet. For those of you younger than me, you did hear me correctly. Back then, we had to call the Internet with a phone. When we, wanted to con- when we wanted to connect to it, and the one phone in the house would then give a busy signal until we disconnected. So all of these restrictions put a limit on the amount of trouble I was able to get into while I was in high school. I managed to get away with some here and there by lying to my mom. I really loved my mom, and I cared so much about what she thought about me. I began to wonder what's wrong with me that I would do such a heinous thing. That feeling went away when I went off to college, of course. And that's when broadband internet was invented. With lightning fast internet came high definition video. Everything I could imagine was available by clicking my finger and nobody was looking over my shoulder and judging me anymore. Sophomore year, I moved into a fraternity house and boy did those guys ever love porn. I doubt there was a room in that house without it and it was all a big joke. Junior year, I lived in Germany on an exchange program The German students loved porn even more than the Americans, and they pointed me to these massive shared collections. I could literally download in one night more than I could watch in a lifetime. I still knew it was wrong, of course, but, you know, so was underage drinking and so was smoking. I figured it was just one of those things you do when you're single and you're a teenager and living on your own. When I got back to America, I met my wife, and while we were dating, she found out what kind of stuff I had on my computer. She was furious nearly broke up with me over it. I was still living alone. She would visit on weekends, and so I decided I had better not let her find out about this. So I began to hide it. Our relationship got more serious, and eventually I asked her to marry me. She was pregnant, so she said yes. And that's when I knew it was time to grow up. I got married, had a baby, graduated college, and started a career all in the same year. 2005 was a big year for us. That was a fairly obvious sign that I was now a grown-up. So I decided to quit looking at porn. I wish I could say that's the end of my story, but it was barely the beginning. I didn't realize at the time I promised my wife to forsake all others that pornography is the most addictive substance known to man.
I wasn't just addicted to the images. I was addicted to the dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, testosterone, and adrenaline. I was a drug addict, and this powerful cocktail could be manufactured right inside my head for free without taking any drugs or anyone seeing. And what's worse, I had actually rewired my brain to bypass the decision-making center, and the emotional center was in control, leaving me unable to stop. Or as the psalmist puts it, I dug a pit and then fell into it. No, it turns out when I made that decision in 2005 to quit porn that the door of my prison was already locked and I was trapped. For the next 12 years, I would go on lying to my wife and hiding it from her. Throughout the 12 years, I was lying to everyone and myself about this problem. I looked pretty good on the outside. God was still blessing me in other areas of my life. My children have always done exceptionally well in school. I have great relationships with my family. My career was doing well, and I was well-respected at work. We went to church every week. We went to Bible study every week. We prayed as a family twice a day. We occasionally had family devotions. I held a position on the outreach board at church. I was even on the council for a few years. My life, and especially my spiritual life, appeared to be in good order. But as anyone addicted to porn knows, you're never okay on the inside. When I looked in the mirror, I saw a man divided against his own conscience. I saw a man who confessed with his lips that pornography is a great evil, but in my heart, I looked forward to my next chance to consume it. Sometimes I would have to wait weeks. Sometimes I didn't know when my next chance would be. All I knew was given the chance I was going to do it, and then hide, and lie, and cover my tracks. I didn't like to look myself in the eye because I saw a liar and a coward. I was disgusted with myself. I really didn't want to do it, but at the same time, I really did. Sort of like how some people might ask an alcoholic, why don't you just not drink? I was asking myself the same question. Why don't you just stop? I now know the answer to that question. Shame. Shame is what drove the addictive cycle. Shame was the reason I did it. It was the outcome of doing it. Shame was the cause of the pain I was trying to escape. Shame was the reason I couldn't tell anyone, but shame grows in the dark. How could I go on like this? Was there anyone else as twisted as I was, living in this paradox of my actions not matching my will? The answer, of course, was yes. Whenever I went to a men's conference or a youth rally, where they have those breakout sessions, there's always one about porn. And there was always a booth in the hallway for ministries like Conquerors Through Christ, devoted entirely to addicts like me. It was at these events that I learned how shockingly common this was. 80% of men between the age of 18 and 30 admit to looking at porn at least once a month. That number is no better inside the church than it is outside. I was not alone. In fact, I wasn't even a minority. These sessions were well attended, and I saw for the first time what it looked like to talk about porn out loud. And so I would reach out to these men, tell them about my struggle, and listen to their stories. I began to own my sin, to recognize I was capable of some really foul crimes against God. But when I got home and my wife asked how the conference went, I wasn't ready to confess my crimes against her. You see, we had an agreement. If she ever found out I was looking at porn, she swore she would divorce me. And that was a price so high I could never pay it. I desperately wanted to quit, but I lacked the self-control to stop. I was getting frustrated with myself and with God. God, if you commanded me not to engage in sexual sin, then why did you make it feel better than anything else in the world? 
You promised not to give me a temptation that I couldn't resist, but you know I can't resist this. What are you doing, God? As, far, as hard as I try, as much as I read my Bible, I have no immunity. What about your promises, God? You have to do something. And then it happened. In 2016, my wife found out. My worst nightmare, the only thing I've ever been afraid of. Thankfully, she didn't catch me in the act. She read an email that I had sent my accountability partner about my struggles. But when I told her I had been lying to her the entire 12 years we'd been married so that I could look at hundreds of thousands of images of other women, she was destroyed. I hurt her worse than anyone else could have. That winter was the most painful and miserable time in her life and in mine. They say that hurt people hurt people. She hurt me back every day, many times a day for months. It was the darkest and most painful winter of our lives. She couldn't bear the pain, so she gave me 48 hours to convince her not to divorce me. I asked for six months, and she agreed. So I made it my full-time job to get this evil out of my life and out of my marriage so the marriage could be what God wanted it to be. It was time for me to really own my junk. For the sake of time, I'll give you the bullet point version of my recovery. The first thing I did was tell everybody, starting with my father-in-law. I was honest with him about the addiction and told him that it had been going on for our entire marriage. I called my mom, still my second most favorite person in the world. I told my girls, they're 10 and 12. I think it was the first time they ever saw me cry, and not the last. My brothers already knew, but I went ahead and told my sister. I told the men in my Bible study, seven men that I loved and respected. None of this was easy, of course, especially since I had no template for this. Christians don't confess this sort of thing to each other, at least not the kind of Christians I hung out with. But I told my wife that everything I do from now on would happen in the open. I knew the power that shame can hold, and I wanted to disarm that power. I figured if I told enough people about the thing that I'd been hiding, it would lose that power. I was right. The next step was the one I enjoyed immensely. I destroyed my hard drive with an eight-pound sledgehammer in front of my kids. To ensure that it never came back, we installed filters on our Internet at home and a monitor on my phone. Now other people can see everything that I click on. We started going to marriage counseling once a week. I went to my own counseling once a week, and we went to Celebrate Recovery every week. Celebrate Recovery is an amazing ministry that happens at Kettlebrook in West Bend every Wednesday night at 6.30. The healing that happens there is nothing short of miraculous. I've seen the Holy Spirit do more in the past two years of Celebrate Recovery than in my previous 30 years of church life. If you are carrying around baggage or pain from your past or some sin that you can't seem to let go of, I hope to see you there on Wednesday. But back to my story. I spent my mornings journaling and praying. I spent the evenings listening to testimonies and watching videos about the brain science behind porn addiction. I took hope from online communities. I listened to podcasts about quitting porn while I was driving. I read books on the subject of sex and marriage. We went to something called Biblical Intensive Counseling. It's basically six months of marriage counseling crammed into five days. The thing that probably helped me the most, though, was at the end of the day, when I wasn't sure if I could go on another day, I would start a fire in the wood stove, and after everyone was asleep, I would sit in front of the fire for like an hour, just staring into it. I would ask the Holy Spirit to fill me with strength and hope and love, and he did. I was reassured of my forgiveness and reminded that I stand in grace. 
For too long, I tried doing this on my own willpower, but the flesh was weak. So as I looked into the flames, I stopped trying to be good enough. I didn't have to. Christ already gave me his robe of righteousness. Every morning, I wake up grateful for that freedom and grateful for the wonderful marriage that he saved. Marriage has an enemy, of course, and he'll always be more powerful than me on my own. His Hebrew name is actually more like a title. The Satan means the accuser. In Greek, he's called devil, which also means the accuser. He can't read my mind, but he's got a pretty good idea of what's in there, and he knows how to mess with my mind. But his weakness is light, truth, the authority of Christ. I use those weapons to fight back. I call out his lies, and I tell him the truth. My name is written in the book of life. I belong to the kingdom of the Almighty God. I've been declared not guilty by the only one who has the authority to judge me. To help keep that in mind, I posted a passage from Roman 8 to my fridge in big letters with a sharpie. It's still there today. It's the one that says, Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. I find it comforting to know that my enemy doesn't even have a courtroom to charge me in. It's all God's. And God wanted me back. As of today, I have a year and a half of sobriety. Every day I praise God for the victory. I finally have the freedom I've always wanted. My wife is happier than she's ever been. I know that because she tells me constantly. She really is wonderful. I'm filled with joy, even on a difficult day, because I'm grateful for what Jesus went through just because he loves me and wants me in his family. That kind of grace is so mind-blowing, I can't explain it. But that won't stop me from trying. Thank you for allowing me to share this with you. I'm grateful for the opportunity to tell my story, because God always gets the glory. Amen. That, that was one of the most powerful stories I've heard in a long time. So we're going to stand up and applaud that. Yeah. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for our brother and thank you for his courage to share that um, as we don't hide, but as we come out of hiding, knowing we're yours, knowing we're forgiven, knowing we're declared not guilty, you actually give us freedom. Thank you for his example. Thank you for his courage. We pray that you'd continue by your spirit to give him strength to know whose he is and to know who he is. And Father, we pray that if, um, if there's any, whether it be that issue or others who that spoke to, that they would do something about it. That they would tell a friend, that they would talk to me, that they would talk to someone, but because we're not meant to battle alone. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.